0: Heavenly Father, as we open up the sacred word of God, I pray that you would lead us and guide us and help us, give us your truth, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, convict our hearts and our minds, and Lord, through Jesus, bring us close to you, we pray. We ask this in his precious name. Name above all names. And we thank you for hearing our prayer together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know what it's like to ask the question, why? Why me? Why do bad things happen to God's people at times? You know, we experience loss. And we say, why? Why, why, why me? Did, did I do something wrong? Is it my sin? Did, did I sin? Is God mad at me? Did I mess up without knowing it? Why me? Have you ever gone through life to face a tragedy or a loss? Or maybe you were born into an unfortunate circumstance and you look up to heaven and you say, Why? Today, or yesterday in eCommunique from the Oregon Conference, they put out a story from a pastor who pastors over at Pleasant Valley, Greg, Pastor Greg Phillips. I don't know if some of you know him. He was actually a youth pastor for me. And his story, I remember him going through that story 20 years ago more than 20 years ago, down in uh, Medford, Oregon. That's where I was born. That's where I grew up, in the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church. I remember when him and uh, his wife, Sandy, had their first child, Aiden, and they discovered that he had a, a heart defect and was not going to survive. In fact, they didn't even expect that Him to be born. He was born, and they got to experience one week with their child before his heart couldn't take the genetic disorder any longer. And after one week, they lost their first baby. The whole church grieved with my pastor, the whole church was in sorrow. Tears falling down their faces as they hugged and embraced Pastor Greg and Sister Sandy. And as we together watched them weep from up front. Showing the slideshow of all the pictures they had taken in that week. And and the one thing that went through everybody's mind was, why? Why? Why this family who has dedicated their life to you, Lord? Why them? Did they do something wrong? Is it a curse from God? Why? When we face difficult moments in our life, we also ask the question, why? And it's not a new question. All the way back at the time of Jesus, men and women were struggling with this whole. Issue. Why? Why are, are 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 these sorts of things? Why do these sorts of things happen to us? I mean, why do why do marriages fall apart? Why do loved ones die? Why do we lose our jobs? Uh, why do we get cancer? Uh, why do we? Why do we? Why are we sometimes the ones that get stuck with the horrible childhood? Why? Is it chance? Is it fate? Is it punishment for sin? Is it a curse? Is God angry with me? This question hit home as the disciples of Jesus looked at a man who was born blind from birth. You'll find the story in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 Jesus and his disciples are walking together. And it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, I mean, they saw the same thing he saw. I don't know if they knew that this man was blind from birth. It seems to me that they did. And perhaps there was a discussion that ensued amongst themselves. I mean, the question is a natural question. Why? When you see human suffering, why? And they said to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Desire of Ages points out that it was generally believed by the Jews that sin is punished in this life. And so when when a Jewish man or a Jewish woman would come across somebody who had hit misfortune in life or had had some sort of health bump in life's road or had some general loss, the automatic assumption was, somebody messed up. Now, we don't know who, but somebody messed up. It was either this man or maybe his mama or his daddy. Or his brother or his sister. Maybe it's a generational curse. Somebody messed up and that's why he's suffering. And so, they skipped over every other possibility, assumed that, and said, okay, the only question left now is who was it? Who's the guilty party? I know somebody who'll know. It's the man who can read people's thoughts. Let's ask Jesus. Jesus. And so along come the disciples, and they go up to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, who was it? Is he suffering for his own sins? Is it a generational curse, his grandparents, his great-grandparents? Was it his parents? Did God foreknow the sins this man would commit and punish him beforehand at birth? To the disciples... The mystery was whether or not the parents were the guilty ones or the man himself was the guilty one. But you need to know that suffering is not God's punishment. Suffering, present suffering, is not a punishment sent from God. Desire of Ages, page 471, says... That Satan, the author of sin and all its results, had led men to look upon disease and death as proceeding from God. As punishment arbitrarily inflicted on account of sin. Who is the one who leads men to think this? Who is it? It's Satan. Satan is the one who when bad things happen to good people, comes and whispers in their ear, God is. Is punishing you. You've messed up and now you've unleashed the wrath of an angry God. He's punishing you for your sins. With this belief, a a way was made to prepare the Jews to reject Jesus as the Messiah. After all, when they should see Jesus crucified, they would automatically assume what? Yeah, think through this with me. If punishment is the result of your, if uh, suffering is the result of your sins, and that suffering is a punishment from God, what are the Jews naturally going to think when they see the Son of God suffering on the cross? Number one, he's a sinner. Number two, he's being punished from God. And then that would lead a person to say, he must not be the Messiah. I'm going to turn my back on him and walk away. You see how Satan works? And, and he's not just doing it with the Jews back then. He does the same today. He gets us to look at our present struggles and our present condition and he whispers in our ear, you messed up and now God is punishing you. You messed up and now God is dealing with you as you deserve. And the heart becomes bitter, soured, or hardened against God. And we look at our condition and say, I'm a hopeless case. And many turn from God because of the insinuations of Satan himself. But Isaiah 53 verse 4 says... Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. The error that suffering is God's punishment for our sins... ...was held by the Jews and prepared the way for them to reject the Messiah... ...the error instigated by Satan goes back to the time of Job. In Job chapter 1 verses 9 through 12... ...we find that Satan wants Job to blame God. Turn there with me. We'll go Job, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Some consider Job to be the very first book ever written in the Bible. Job, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Job kind of unlocks the character of God in the great controversy like few other books in the bible it's a fascinating book and it's the one book that many who are going through stu- suffering turn to job chapter 1 verse 9 verses 9 through 12 so satan answered the lord and said does job fear god for nothing Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely do what? Curse you to your face. What did Satan want Job to do? Curse God. And in that curse is a blame. Job, Satan wanted Job to blame God for his sufferings so that Job would turn from God in the midst of his sufferings. That was Satan's goal. You think that's Satan's goal only for Job? You know, Satan has a plan for you and me too. And what he's been successful with in the past, he will use in the present. "...the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Those sufferings were from the devil. Now God allowed it. God allowed it. And God allowed that man to be born blind. And God allows suffering because of sin to exist here on earth for a time. You have to realize that God does have a plan to end suffering... He does have a plan that He's working out. There will be a day when there will be no more cancer, no more death, no more disease, no more heartache. God is going to work it out. Trust in Him. But in the meantime, God does allow things, but just because God allows it does not mean He's the one who causes it or doesn't mean that He's the one that wants it to continue in your life. God never desired that any should suffer. In fact, 2nd Peter chapter 3 tells us that that the Lord is long suffering, not willing that any should should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't desire that we should suffer. Now Job's response, if you go to Job 1 verse 20 through 22, listen to what it says. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of our Lord. And all of this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. I love it how Job turns his present condition into a praise to God. He's suffering. He's losing his health and you find that he ends up losing in every category of his life and through it all, Job turns it to praise the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You go to Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It says, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in whose hands? Your hand, thine hand, but spare his life. So Job's body is afflicted by Satan. Satan again wants Job to blame God. What is Job's response? Go to verse 10. Job 2 verse 10 But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job accepts suffering as part of God's plan and again he trusts in God. Go to Job chapter 4 now verses 7 through 9. Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. And notice what it says. Remember now, this is Eliphaz, one of uh, Job's friends. says, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. What is Eliphaz saying? Eliphaz is saying, Job, don't you know? Don't you know the truth? If you're suffering, you must have sinned. And if you sinned, your suffering is a... Punishment from God. So Job, all you got to do is repent of your sin and everything will be good. But what happens when you don't see that connection real clear? What happens... Now, I'm not saying that suffering can't be the result of sin. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes we suffer because of our intemperance or our impatience. Sometimes we suffer... Our our present suffering is something that we caused ourselves. you know? Uh, It's not always somebody else's fault. Sometimes the blame goes right here. But, not all suffering is just because uh, we messed up and God is uh, punishing us. The reason I bring this verse up is I want you to see... That this lie from Satan didn't just start 2,000 years ago. It started 4, 5,000, 6,000 years ago when Job, when the book of Job was written. Some consider it to be the first book in the Bible to, to have been written even before Genesis. All the way back then, you can see this lie that's being instigated by Satan that our suffering is always a result of our sins. And our suffering is always a punishment from God. And Satan always instigates that lie in order to turn us away from God so that we will turn our back on Him and blame Him for the things we're going through in life. Desire of Ages, page 471 says, The same error for which God had reproved the friends of Job was repeated by the Jews in their rejection of Christ. The very same error If I believe my suffering is God's punishment, who will I blame? Who will I become bitter towards? If I believe my suffering is part of God's plan to save me, will I be looking to blame or or be bitter? If I believe that my suffering is part of God's plan to save me, will I blame Him or be bitter towards Him? Has anyone here ever had surgery before? Anyone? Yes. Do you blame your surgeon? You bitter against your surgeon? Now maybe, maybe if you didn't do a good job. You know? It's like, doctor, you got the wrong leg. That's why they put an X, right? This, they put an X before they sedate you. We just want to make sure this is the right one. Uh, We don't want to take out the wrong kidney. Um... But generally, you go into surgery, you know that you're going to be going through pain, you know that you're going to suffer, you know that there's going to be a time of recovery, but you do it gladly because you know that there's going to be healing through that pain. That, that something that's broken is going to be fixed through that suffering. You know that that loss is going to be allowed for some greater purpose. And so you go through that loss believing that that loss will work out a greater good for your life. And you're not bitter. You're not angry. You're not upset at your surgeon. You bear through the pain. And when the doctor comes in and you're doped on a, up on medication, you say, thank you. Don't you? Thank you doctor. Thank. Oh, thank you. Now why in the world would somebody say thank you while they're going through pain? The only way you could do that is if you see the pain as part of the process of your salvation. As part of the process for your healing. What if rather than God causing suffering as a punishment, he allows suffering as a part of His plan of salvation in your life. Would that change the way you relate with God? Would that change the way that you view Him and interact with Him? Satan does not want us to view God in this way. Satan's goal is to lead men and women to distrust God and to reject God's Son. He accomplishes these goals by leading men and women to believe that their present troubles are from an angry God. Today, Satan is seeking to instill this belief in the minds of the mass multitude. He is working with diligence to prepare the world to reject the Messiah and to turn from God in distrust when Jesus comes the second time. But friends... There is a secret, and that secret is to not look at the cause of the suffering, but the result of the suffering. John chapter 9, verse 3, we're back in our story. John chapter 9, verse 3, the disciples see with Jesus a man that is born blind. And the question that would arise in any person's mind arises, why? Why this man? Why his suffering? Jesus turns to them and says this, Neither this man has sinned, nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. Jesus points the disciples away from the question of why to the question of what not why is he suffering but what is god going to do through this suffering sometimes when we go through through crises in our life our first question is lord why do i why am i going through this right now why why big question mark why and god takes a eraser erases the why and says, wrong question. The question that a Christian asks or should ask when they go through, through suffering is not why, but what. Lord, what do you want to accomplish through this suffering in me? What do you want to accomplish That's great in this world that you couldn't accomplish in any other way, but through this suffering, what do you want to accomplish? What's the results that you want to have at the end of this period of suffering? What, Lord? Let me know what that I might head towards that goal. What? Desire of Ages, page 471, it says... He did not explain the cause of the man's affliction, but told them what would be the result. Then it continues, The disciples were not called upon to discuss the question as to who had sinned or had not sinned, but to understand the power and mercy of God in giving sight to the blind man. Jesus did not focus on the cause of the man's suffering, Instead, He focused on the result that would come through the suffering. Why did Jesus focus on the result and not the cause? Because if we focus on the cause of our suffering, we can become bitter. But if we focus on the result of that results God has promised through our suffering, we can only become joyful. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. What is he focusing on here? Is he focusing on the why you suffer or the what will happen when you suffer? The why or the what? The what. And what is the what? What happens when, you're, when you suffer? knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How many of you would like to be perfect? Anybody here would like to lack nothing? Amen! Perfect, complete, lack nothing? Amen! What if I told you that the road from here to there included some suffering. But the suffering would be temporary, and at the end of that journey, you would be perfect, you would be complete, and you would lack nothing. You see, it changes. It changes our perspective. All of us are willing to walk that path because all of us, if we had to choose between life and death, would say, I choose surgery. I choose to go through pain. You know, I still am in wonder why mothers would choose to have a second child. For some reason, at the age of two or three, they forget. You know, we are willing to go through pain for the end reward here in the physical life. We're willing to do it. And Jesus has give, God has given us our physical life to be an illustration of the greater kingdom of heaven. Just as we have to endure pain now in order to experience joy, so we will need to endure pain pain and suffering now here on earth to experience the greater joy of heaven. But it's temporary, friends. It's temporary. It does not last forever. And another thing, God gives us strength. He gives us joy. He gives us help through it. Nobody enjoys going through pain. But if we set our mind on the promises of God, we can endure it. Through His strength. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is working something out in your life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-16, through 16, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as murderers, as a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Are you suffering? Praise God. There's something He's working out in your life. Have you experienced a loss lately? Praise God. There's something that He is doing in your life. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The disciples were to turn their eyes off of those uh, whose fault it was And place them upon Jesus and his promises. I'm reminded. I'm reminded in this area here. How many people in our church today. Are upset about the condition of the Christian church in general. And they walk around with bitterness in their hearts. Anger burning in their soul. And the only thing that's on their mind is whose fault it is. Today Jesus calls you to turn your eyes off of whose fault it is. And to turn it back to the other question. How can I give glory to God through it? What does God, What is God trying to accomplish through this? God doesn't want bitter Christians. God is not going to bring angry Christians to heaven. He's going to bring Christians who are humble. Who have given themselves to Him. And though all may fall apart around them, they say, God, how can I glorify you amidst the ruins, the shambles, and the trials that I face? The question isn't about pointing fingers. The question isn't even about understanding all the reasons why. The question that we need to understand is, what is God trying to accomplish in my life through this trial. And in this way, we can count it all joy. Give glory to God. When we face difficulties and trials, we have a choice whether or not we seek to find fault with someone or whether we stretch out our hand in faith to Jesus and trust in His power and mercy, regardless of whose fault it is. John 9, verses 6 through 7, we're back at our story. And it says... When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. I love it that Jesus, when he's going to work a miracle here, he turns to a natural remedy. Amen. Doesn't go to the hospital and pick up a pharmaceutical. Doesn't say, go to your... uh, Okay, let me stop there. But he goes to natural remedies. He makes a clay pack for this man's eye. Now I'm sure there's many other spiritual lessons because he doesn't just leave that clay pack on his eye. In fact, in any one of our eyes, that clay pack on our eye would have blinded us. He puts this clay pack on this man's face and then he gives him something to do. He gives him a command. He says, go and wash. Let's read it. And he said to him... Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went. That means that he placed his faith in Jesus and immediately moved forward in obedience. He went and washed. And praise the Lord, he came back seeing. If we also walk in the light of God's counsel, in the light of God's word, humbly obeying every command as he gives us commands, we too will have the scales fall from our eyes because scales only fall from the eyes of those who place their faith in God. As long as you're trying to solve your problems on your own, those scales will remain. Had that man never gone to the pool of Siloam and said, This is ridiculous. What can a clay pack do? This is absolutely absurd. What can go and wash this mud off my eyes really do? If he had given up on the words of Jesus, he would have remained blind. And when we give up on Jesus' promises in the very midst of our trials, we too remain blind. We don't see what could have been. By faith, you must believe that Jesus has a purpose through every trial you face, through every struggle you go through. God is is working out a plan in your life. And And the man moves forward. You see, the man couldn't see because he was born blind. Putting mud over his eyes wouldn't make a difference to this man. Even without mud, he couldn't see put the mud over someone else's eyes, they wouldn't see. In 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, it tells us, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Some may claim that there was healing power in the clay and that If we want to have better eyesight, we should all wear clay packs. However, there was nothing in the clay or the water that healed the man. Those were both mediums Christ used to teach a spiritual lesson. Desire of Ages puts it this way. It was evident that there was no healing virtue in the clay or in the pool wherein the blind man was sent to wash, but that the virtue was in Christ. The clay represents unbelief. Just as clay over our eyes blinds us, so unbelief over our hearts blinds us. The water represents faith in Christ's word. Just as water washes off the mud, so faith in Christ's word removes the veil that covers the eyes of the unbelievers. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 it says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Jesus' miracle resembles the miracle of the prophet Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, it tells us the story of the prophet Elisha. I'd like to invite you to turn there. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. You know, and another thought came to my mind as as I'm here Sometimes we blame people who have not yet been converted for their mistakes and their wrongs, not realizing that they can't see yet, because they have not yet experienced Christ, because the veil is only taken away in Christ. Don't blame people for their mistakes. Pray for them that they might receive Christ and the veil be taken away and then they will see their mistakes clearly. You won't have to say a word. If we prayed for people more than we blamed people, I think we'd see a lot more change in our world. That reminds me of another statement. I'll throw this one out too. It says, if you want a better pastor, pray for him. (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, just, just remember that. Okay, 2 Kings 5 9 through 14. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to to him, saying, "'Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, "'and your flesh shall be restored to you, "'and you shall be clean.' "'But Naaman became furious and went away and said, "'Indeed, I said to myself, "'He will surely come out to me and stand "'and call in the name of the Lord God "'and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. "'Are not the Abana and the Farpar and the rivers of Damascus "'better than all the waters of Israel? "'Could I not wash in them and be clean?' So he turned and went his way in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you, have not, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So, made sense. He went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the sayings of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of, of a little child, and he was clean. Now what was it that washed away Naaman's leprosy? Was it the mud and the muddy waters of the Jordan River? It was faith. Faith in the word of the prophet. What was it that washed away the mud so that the blind man could see? Yeah, yeah, it was water, but it was faith. It was faith. Faith in the word of Christ. I imagine that this blind man who had never met Jesus before probably thought Jesus was a prophet like Elisha, since Jesus did such similar miracles. John 9, verse 17, it says, They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And the blind man said, He is a prophet. Later, Jesus comes to the man and clarifies that he's more than a prophet. He is the Son of God. And the man worships him, and that's in verses 35 through 38 of John 9. Desire of Ages, page 475, has this to say, it says, Not only had his natural sight been restored, but the eyes of his understanding had been opened. Christ had been revealed to his soul, and he received him as the sent of God. Now why did the Pharisees have so much hate and bitterness and anger towards Jesus? You see, they were suffering too. When Jesus came to the scene, their popularity decreased. Jesus challenged their traditions. Jesus drove out their business from the temple. Jesus' words unveiled their hypocrisy and the shallowness of their faith. They were suffering from wounded pride. And how did the Pharisees respond? John uh, John chapter 11, verses 49 through 53, tells us. Turn over to John 11. John 11, verses 49 through 53. John chapter 11, verse 49 through 53. This is how the Pharisees responded when they went through suffering. And one of them... Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad." Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Pharisees go through suffering. Their suffering is wounded pride. What is their solution? Find the cause, eliminate the cause who's the problem? Do you see how it's the same solution that the disciples were coming to? Lord, this man has, has, is under suffering. What's the cause? Is it his sin or is it his parents' sin? Let's find the cause. And once we find the cause, then we can eliminate the cause. Same thing with Job. Job, if you just find the cause of your suffering... You can eliminate the cause and your suffering will end. Jesus introduces a paradigm shift. He says, if you're looking for the cause of your suffering, it very likely could lead you to reject the Messiah. But if you're looking for the purpose, God's ultimate goal through your suffering, rather than turning your back on the Messiah, you're going to run to the Messiah. You're going to embrace the Messiah. You're going to come to God and say, Lord, work out this purpose in me. The Pharisees, rather than, than looking for God's purpose in their suffering, looked for the cause of their suffering and they found it in Jesus. They were focused on that cause. And their response, their response could have been different. When they felt the pain of decreasing popularity, they could have looked to heaven and said, It all comes from above. Lord, your will. When their traditions were challenged, they could have said, it all comes from above. If God is in our traditions, they will stand through his power, not our own. When they lost their business in the temple and felt the pinch of the penny a little more, they could have said, it all comes from above. God is able to provide for our financial needs. When the words of Jesus unveiled their hypocrisy and the shallowness of their their faith... ...they could have said, it all comes from above. Praise God, the areas of my spiritual life that I was blinded to... ...I now see and can address. Lord, help me to be authentic and deeper in my faith in you. If only the Pharisees had chosen not to look at their problems as the result of Jesus... If only they hadn't focused on Him as the cause and instead of focusing on the promise of the result that God would work for them, they would not have been blinded. Blindness is healed when, when in faith we take every situation that comes into our life, look up to heaven and say, it all comes from above. Little Tim was standing by his father's bedside. His father was dying. And praise God, his father was a Christian man. But no little boy should should have to lose his dad so young. And he looked at his father, and his father turned to him and said, Son, whatever happens in life, I want you to realize no matter what happens in your life, I want you to always realize it all comes from above. And Tim grabbed onto that statement and carried it in his heart. The rest of his life, no matter what happened, good or bad, he'd look up to heaven and say, it all comes from above. One day, he was walking down the street, delivering newspapers, and as he walked past this house, a great gust of wind blew off one of the tile shingles, and the tile shingle flew through the air, struck him in the shoulder, and knocked him down in the road. And after a few tumbles, he got up and raised his hands to heaven and said, It all comes from above. And the other boys in the street and the neighbors and those who saw it happen said, crazy kid, what is he talking about? It all comes from above. Getting hit by a tile. I sure wouldn't say that if I got hit by a tile. It all comes from above. As he dusts off his jacket and he puts his newspapers back in his bag and continues down the street, the wind picks up again at the next house and this time doesn't knock off a shingle, but takes the whole roof and takes the whole roof off the house, and it all lands in the street. If he had not been hit by that shingle, he would have been killed by the roof that, that fell in the street. And once again, Tim raises his hands to heaven and says, It all comes from above. Not too many days or weeks later, Tim got a better job from a businessman, a wealthy businessman in the city. And the wealthy businessman said, I'd like to pay you a sum of money to deliver this letter to another uh, another town, to a man in another town. But you have to go in haste. I'd like it delivered there tonight. And Tim said, yes, sir. And he lifted up his hands to heaven, and he said, it all comes from above. He had a job. And he took that letter, and in his haste, as he was trying to cross a stream, he tripped, and he fell, and he lost his balance, and he nearly drowned in the stream, and in the process, finally got to the other side, and when he got scrambled up the other side, he realized that he had lost the letter in the stream. So he raised his hands to heaven, and he says, It all comes from above. And he trudged back to that businessman's house and he knocked on his door soaking wet and he had to explain the whole story to the businessman and he said, I'm sorry, this such and such happened as I was crossing the stream, I nearly drowned, I lost your letter, I wasn't able to deliver it. That man nearly threw Tim out of his house in anger. He was furious. How could you lose my letter? How could you be so incompetent? What what were you thinking? And he he kicked Tim out. And as Tim goes tumbling out the front door, he dusts himself off. And with the slam of the door behind him, he raises his hands to heaven and he says, It all comes from above. The next day, the businessman calls him back to his home. Tim stands before the businessman. And the businessman pulls out an envelope with a large sum of money... ...more money than Tim had ever seen before. And he hands it to Tim and he says... ...just this morning I found out that had that letter been delivered on time... ...I would have lost thousands of dollars in a major business deal... ...but because that letter was lost... I have gained a great sum of money... and I want to say thank you by giving you this gift. And he gave Tim the great sum of money... and as Tim walked out the door... he raised his hands to heaven heaven, and he said... It all comes from above. You see, there's great truth in changing our perspective, friends. Whatever you go through life... whether it is good or whether it is bad... To believe that God is in charge of your life does something to your soul. It it allows you to be joyful no matter what circumstance you're in. You're not looking to blame anybody. You're not looking to curse anybody. There's no bitterness in your heart. The, The only thing that's there is joy and praise to God because no matter what happens, it all comes from above. Today, God offers you the opportunity of a new perspective A change, a change that Jesus tried to give to His disciples through a man who was born blind. And the miracle of this man who was born blind can still be affecting men and women today. See, it really was to the glory of God, wasn't it? Today, would you like to look at your present trials, lift your hands to heaven and say, Lord, I choose to believe today it all comes from above. I choose to believe that you still have a purpose and a work in my life. How many of you would like to raise your hand in faith and say, Thank you, Lord, for what you're bringing me through. Let's bow in prayer together. Heavenly Father, how difficult it is at times to thank you through our trials but by faith we, we choose today to look to heaven and say, we believe that you have a purpose that you're working out in our life and in this situation we may not be able to answer the question why and we're not even going to look at that question why right now. But what we are going to look at is that you have a plan in our life. Help us to be in the center of your plan." Let there be no room for bitterness or anger or mistrust or hatred in my heart, Lord. Because the only thing that is filling my heart is the faith and the patience and the peace and the joy that are gifts from you. Let these be the things that are found in my heart. And Father, I pray that they would not only be found in my heart, but I pray that they would be seen in my face. I pray that these gifts of joy and peace and gladness and gentleness would be heard in my voice, would be felt in my hugs and handshakes, Lord, this is our collective prayer together. Make us like Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.